Thank you so much for doing this again. It's good to see you. And you too, my dear. Everything good over there where you're at? Oh, see here, Steve Ferroni. This is what I was trying to tell you. That no way. We no. love you. No. <laughs> one of my favorite drummers, one of my favorite drummers on the planet. He is a monster talent. Without you, know, you know, while while you're saying that, I just went, Snuffy and I went and saw Ringo recently. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, he's really, when he sits behind the kit, He's yeah. crazy. He's just, <laughs> he's just crazy. I know that the Beatles came along after you started playing. Who, 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 who influenced you? Oh, well, my, <laughs> I went, when I first started playing drums, the drummers that I, that I listened to mm -hmm. were the the drummers that were playing and the music that I was turned on by, which got me going. And that was like the music of, uh, Bobby Bland and Ray Charles and stuff like that. And then Max right. Records and, and, you know, and, and then Motown later. Um, those are the, those are the, uh, the, the musicians and the, the, uh, the, uh, the music that I listened to and, and all of those players, uh, Al Jackson Jr. at Stax and uh, John J. Bo Starks with Bobby Bland and people like that, you know, those were like my favorite guys that I, that I grew up on. And, um, Later on, you know, when, when when the great rock drummers came along, that happened as well. But uh, I didn't realize that I was such a fan of Earl Palmer's until I found out how many of those records that he played on that were seminal to to rock and roll uh, made in New Orleans, especially of all places, Cosmo Matassa's studio. So um, that's that's what I cut my teeth on. And I go to that music so easily. Uh, you know, I obviously branched out and learn many other styles but that's what i cut my teeth on was that kind of music who, so. who were the who were the rock drummers that uh that turned you on when you were young um well of course ringo he can't you know mm -hmm. the charm of ringo is just amazing he, he was magical in his in so many ways and it, you know either visually watching him doing his thing isn't he like, fun to watch he is you, know, you, you watch this guy doing this thing where he shook his head and you're going <laughs> You couldn't take your head, your eyes off of him doing it. And of yeah. course, the groove that he kept for all of those wonderfully written songs that the Beatles did uh, was was perfect. And 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 he played all the right parts. His time was good. His 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 taste was good. His fills were good. You know, he was influenced by a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about as well, because they right. were on American rock and roll, blues, R&B, sort of. Uh, those were their early influences. So Ringo had such a magic and and then of course if you go through the evolution of the beatles till you get to you know sergeant pepper wow you we know. just watched get back again and it's yeah. just amazing isn't it and, and sergeant pepper to the white album and it just kept getting better and better and better and and all of these things that came out on these incredible songs and these drum parts that were melodic or simple or group you know and, and so many people should have learned to play by that if they didn't, you know, but he was a major influence. Ringo was one of the most incredible. Um, I, I love the feel of Charlie Watts, uh, without a doubt, all the early Rolling Stones. And then, and of course, uh, Bonham with uh, Led Zeppelin was a real pioneer in the way, man, he, that cat had, he had a real slick way of, of swinging the beat and everything and yet rocking hard at the same time. Um, you rock really hard. I, you know, I, I got to see you play a couple times recently and you, 
you are a rock and slamming drummer. You really are. Thank you. You you really are very and very fun to watch because you you look like you're very laid back, but you're slamming the shit out of it. <laughs> you know you 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 just look so you know relaxed and kind of. But you're you're you play hard. You play hard. Well, I I do I do when when the music calls for that type of intensity mm -hmm. and play a little you know I play a friend of mine were discussing volume and drums and drummers uh, the other day and and some of the places that you play live you can't really let it go like you would if you're playing in an arena and I'm used to from all of my years of touring of playing in larger places and uh, playing really soft and quiet <laughs> I hear that next week is going to be a little bit of a challenge <laughs> <laughs> well yeah <laughs> we do the best we can with all of that. I have all things considered and everybody considered. So, you know, as we always do, we try to make it. I, I always say try to be musical in any situation. Um, but there are That's types of that require a little bit more intensity than others. So. So, OK, so. How about the ba what? Ba OK, you play with one of the greatest bass players. I, Terry Wilson is oh, just. Yeah. He's yeah. a monster. Yeah. I, I think he's really underrated. I don't think enough people know how brilliant he is. Yeah. Uh, I when I when I get to hear him play, watch him play, I'm always just taken aback by what a he's an incredible songwriter. But his bass yeah. playing is really kick ass. Who who what other great what, what other bass players have you like like thrill you to play with? Well, I mean, I've got to play with uh, uh, very briefly Chuck Rainey for mm -hmm. one day. Uh, and then um, my, my, the, the, the guys that I really got to be, uh, Terry and I go, let me go to Terry, sir, first. Because you got to start with Terry. We go, to, we go back to like 1969, 68, which is around the same time as Snuffy, all of us met in Houston, Texas. Okay, so how did you guys meet? <laughs> my brain cells don't work that well. You know, but you but you guys were teenagers. Basically, you were teenagers, right? Just, pa just past it, getting from okay. late teens, early twenties, where you okay. trouble gets a little bit better. You know, and, <laughs> and and you guys, did you meet playing together or playing not I, together? I was, I was playing in a band called Buttermilk. I was playing in nightclubs in Houston, Texas, with big soul bands, ten piece soul bands. Uh, and you and, started doing that when you were like a te like a young teenager, right? 18, 17, 18. No, no. I, you told me last time you were like 15 when you started, 15 playing, when in I started playing. When I first started playing in nightclubs as a yeah. Yeah, soul music, but at around 16, 17 is when it really started to break out. Hmm. Junior in high school, uh, I was like playing and, you know, uh, not six nights a week all the time, but very often I had six night a week gigs and I would be going to school and working six nights a week. How were your parents? Now, I know your dad was a player as well, but how did they feel about you doing this? Well, they didn't like it. <laughs> you know, there was always it was always a problem because uh, that was a lifestyle they never wanted me to be a part of. And and we we got past all of that. And um, but I started playing in the big soul bands and stuff like that. And uh, now how did you, Mr. Little White Boy, get to be playing in these soul bands? It was the influence of the music that I heard uh, earlier on. My dad was into country music and my and and I that's pretty much all I listened to and everything else. Oh, all, wow. all the black music, African-American music was kind of like, you don't want to hear that. You know what I mean? Where I grew up in Texas. Well, yeah, you grew up in Texas. Yeah. Oof. So um, I remember my my cousin Betty and I've told the story several times. 
would she come, she babysitted uh, for a few times uh, for my mother a few times with my brother and I and when we went to their house um, and Betty was there and er, the parents were at work and it was just cousin Betty looking after all the little kids and she had African American music on the radio on these two uh, stations in Houston called K C O H and K Y O K and um, she was playing that music and I went wow and I couldn't believe it so uh, the story is that. I, at that point, I wanted to drive the car, but I was too young. Obviously, I couldn't get my 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 learner's permit till 15. So, but my dad, I talked him into letting me back the car up about 25 or 30 feet, and that way I could at least get in the car, put it in gear, look behind me, hit the brakes, put it out. <laughs> that was a thrill for me, and and for that thrill, I told him, I'll wash the car, I'll do everything, whatever, you know. So I'm washing the car. And one Saturday after the after the cousin Betty thing happened, and I'm going crazy about this music, I'm starting to slide into it. Um, the the radios in the old days had push buttons on them: one, two, three, four, five, six push buttons. So I turned the last two push it, uh, buttons. I turned the dial to those two black stations, and I pulled the buttons out as presets. Boom. Okay, I'm listening to them when I want to listen to. But the other four stations were my my dad's stations. And right. So the next day after church. We're driving out to grandma's place in the afternoon for the brunch late afternoon whatever and uh and my dad was a button pusher while he's driving <laughs> i remember being in the back of that 55 ford just barely able to see over the window and all of a sudden my dad hits one of those last two buttons and hits both of them and he's going back and forth and he i can't tell you the expletives that he used <laughs> but he but he yelled and he yelled he said oh, 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 oh. what is that where did that come from who did that? And, and of course I went, well, I did dad, you know? And so he said, uh, where did you hear that music? And I said, well, well, cousin, cousin Betty played that music. And I, you know, you know and, and then he didn't know what to say because he didn't want to say anything wrong, but it was like, he felt that I was misguided at that point. <laughs> we barely talked about it, but, but uh, around that same time, not long after that, I'd already picked up drumsticks, and I, then I was hanging out with my friend Willie Arnellis down at the end of my street. And Willie Arnellis is a really a great drummer that moved out here a long time ago and was very accomplished, especially at recording a, lots and lots of TV shows, big time TV shows and, and movie scores. And he was in that realm out here and recorded, you know, records for famous people as well. Uh, but he started me out, and he lived down the street from me, and I would sneak over to his place. Hey, Willie, can I come in? Yeah, there's a drum kit there. And we'd start listening to, to all these R&B records and everything. And uh, and then little by little, I'm taking my drumsticks and and he would move off the drum kit over and I'd go sit down and I'd go try to play something. And they go, no, do your hand like this. And okay. So he was barely, barely gave me guidance, but it was great because all it did was get me going in the right direction. I bought my first drum kit from him when I was 15. And we were sitting there in the, in, the, in the house in the afternoon. The phone rings and someone asked him if he could come play at a certain bar that night. And he goes, uh, no, I can't. I'm already busy. He's got the phone up to his ear and he looks, he says, but I know somebody else who might be able to, 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 to do this. I'm 15. I've never played a gig. Holy he looks across shit. the table and he goes, I know somebody He's looking at me like, I know somebody that might be able to do this. And he's like looking at me. And I went, uh, I was puzzled. He goes, uh, he puts his hand over the phone. He goes, hey, you want to do a gig tonight? And I said, well, I have to ask my mom and dad. You know? <laughs> so, 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 I, uh, so he says, okay, Charlie, we'll call you back. Hangs up. He goes, you better go ask your mom and dad. 
Well, it just so happens that on that day, I skipped a little bit in there between the first time we got together and this day. But on that day, he decided he was going to sell one of his drum kits. And he said, I'll sell you that drum kit there for 100 bucks, 100 bucks if you give me the money in, in seven days. If not, it's 150 You know, and I went, okay. So wow. I go and sell my drum. I go and sell my motor scooter for $40. And I walk back two miles because oh. now I had no transportation. I had a little bitty motor scooter. And um, I got the drum kit. I don't know what to do with it but I have a drum kit. I bought a drum kit. So then I go down after the phone call and ask my mom and dad. And it was like hell because they were like, no, no, you're not playing in a nightclub. You're not playing in a nightclub. So finally, I, my, my dad's like, runs me off to my mom. Ask you, ask your mom. You know, he was frustrated. <laughs> I, mom, can I, come on. Mom. Oh, oh, honey, no, you're too young to do this. And go ask your dad. I go back to dad and finally dad said, all right, I'll let you do it. But here's the deal. You don't smoke any funny cigarettes from anybody. <laughs> any from anybody. And don't drink any alcohol and don't talk to the women. All right. Um, yeah, I am 15. None of those things register on my, you know. Right. You know. So I go back to Willie's and I said, I can do it. I can do it. And so Willie calls him back and says, hey, I got you a drummer. Um, um, uh, his name is Tony. Yeah. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. Hey, can you come pick him up? Uh, we'll come to my house and pick him up. Okay. I'm waiting outside and I'm five, eight now. And I was five, six or so then I'm not a, a tall man. And, <laughs> and so he, um, um, calls a guy, the guy comes to pick me up and he's waiting. I'm waiting out front and he, he walks up and he goes, uh, Hey, I'm looking for a guy named Tony. And I'm using the accent because this is Houston, Texas. Right. right. <laughs> I'm looking for a guy named Tony. He said, um, I said, hi, hi I'm Tony. You know. <laughs> Picks me up, puts me, we put my stuff in the car, we drive off, we're, about, we're down the street a little ways, and he goes, uh, how many gigs, are, where have you been playing lately? I said, you know, I did a sock hop, and I did played in my cousin's garage, and uh, he goes, are you, so you haven't played any clubs or anything? I said, no. He goes, this is your first gig? <laughs> I said, yes, it is, and then, and then the funniest part, which I always tell us, I love this line, is, uh, in the front seat over here, the, the guy's face that I couldn't see yet was the bass player. He goes, this is so-and-so, the bass player, Ronnie, the bass player. And he didn't turn around yet. But then when, when Charlie said, so this is your first gig, the, the bass player turns around and he had a glass eye. And he looks at me and he goes, no shit. So I'm like, I was, I was very scared. I went, man, what has Willie done to me, you know? And then Charlie, the, the, the guy said, hey, man, what's Willie? Willie Arnell's done this to us, you know. So I'm uh, like, how old are these guys? Are they are they they're, like they're, they're mid 20s, late 20s? Whatever. Oh, God, they're like, uh, they're like, guy, you're like grownups, you know. Yeah. And so that, well, you know how to play so and so and so and so. And I knew how to play all the songs that they had. Oh, did you? Them. That's what I was yeah. going to ask. No, I knew I, I knew how yeah. I got through the night and I went and played the gig and it went out good. And they actually asked me back the next weekend. And wow. came, it came to pick me up and took me to the gig. So that was my crazy beginning. And from that, I, I launched off into playing the other bars and clubs around town. And that's that's how you got your, you know, that you learn to play by playing real music with real musicians. And they, they were very mixed bands in Texas, uh, you know, African-Americans, uh, Hispanics and, and white guys, you know, all mixed up together, you know, and, uh, as much racism as there is down there or whatever or was and is. 
that didn't bleed over into the music at all. You know, the music. Wow. And did, and so you never formally studied? No. Later on, I learned to read music and I studied. How'd you do that? I took a few lessons and it didn't take Mm -hmm. much for me to like kind of get the basics of reading down, you know, for Mm -hmm. drums and, and um, I can't read piano, you know, I can't read notation very well. I can give me a minute and I'll figure it out. Uh-huh. And I can sit down and play basic chords at the piano and basic chords on the guitar. But I never stopped and mastered either one of those instruments. So, and um, and even in producing, you know, I still I still plunk things out. I was I just going to ask you, how does that work? If you're trying to get a sound, do you sing it? What do you do? In some cases, I sing it. Mm-hmm. And then if I can sing it, I can go to the piano and find the notes. And then I know that that chord is that chord and that chord. You know, I'm, I'm not going to play any really advanced jazz chords. I know a few, but um, and I never took any classical in it or anything like that. And so I was pretty much self-taught in most cases. And but I did learn later on to read better. So especially when I moved to Los Angeles, because uh, I did more. I didn't have to read music very much when I lived in New York and, and in London. Um, I was playing in bands. I was playing in situations where you, you, know, you didn't have a chart put in front of you. But in Los Angeles, I moved here. Boom, they're putting a chart in front of you. And I'm going, okay. That, that's when you're going into the recording studio, I assume. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah, picked yeah. a quick on it. So I was able to get by with it. And still to this day, I, you know, I, I write, I can still, you know, people throw a chart up in front of me. And if it's not, you know, ridiculous, I can read that, you know. So I pulled that off. But yeah, that was my beginning at Houston, Texas. And that's why... That was, we go back to where we met, uh, Terry and, and- Okay, so wait, didn't you get a recording contract with that first band, with that- um, Buttermilk Bottom, we with, got a recording contract on Polydor, yes. And you're, you're, you're a teenager. That, yeah, 19, 20. Yeah, 19 or 20 years old, right around there. <laughs> I think I was 20, uh, you know. And what and, happened? Well, we went to Memphis and recorded it with, uh, uh, what was his name? He, he was in, oh, he had been in- Anyhow, we recorded this guy, English guy, and and, yeah. and we did it in Memphis, and we used the Memphis horns on it, and what a great experience, and um, oh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name that did it, white hair, British guy, uh, played with the animals, um, anyhow, I'll remember in a second. Okay. Uh, Vic, 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 um, come on, memory. All around that time, that's right around the time that I started running into this whole group of people musicians and everything young guys the same kind of people same energy as snuffy and terry and terry was in a band called oh uh i can't remember the name of them um so i should have read up on my history before i got <laughs> that's all right uh, but uh, terry can we can check with terry mm-hmm. so and terry was in a band and and um, um we were p- kind of parallel bands around town working and knew each other and snuffy was in some bands and with Dennis Collins and other people that I knew and 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 we all ran into each other and of course when you all get together and party then you become friends and at that age there was plenty of partying and plenty of friendships and uh that's where I first met Snuffy and of course we we hit it off right away you know like uh-oh <laughs> you know yeah. two sparks you know mm-hmm. and uh Terry was uh in another band and um Terry's band broke up my band broke up attitudes nothing happened with the record and 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 attitudes people Mm. really dedicated enough to stay after something 
and committed and uh and and because of that then you know the attitudes take over and then the professionalism goes away and mm. then you don't you, you've got to really you've got to really want to do this you know and terry's band hung in for a while and then they broke up and formed another band and then he asked me to join their band and that's when i went to new york with him and we had worked together around that time already since like 68 69 when we met which uh, around that time and uh, we've been friends and worked together ever since and i just want to point out you guys are all doing including snuffy a gig next week i mean from then to now literally it's next crazy wednesday, the next wednesday the at the right off room right off rooms in the 26th with Teresa james yes yeah please come out Please yes, out. we'll 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 talk we'll we'll give that a good a good good plug as before we sign and, uh, up. Here. So Terry and I uh, moved to New York uh, early on in the seventies, and we had a record deal for a minute up there with the band that we took up there. And uh, what that, band was that? That was that was called Bluntz B L O O N T Z, which is was kind of a joke of a name, but it was that was the name of the band, and we all went with it. <laughs> and, um, and we had a record deal with Evolution Records. Nothing happened of it. We got on the radio and, you know, there was no management or support of what we were doing to help it get any better. And then the band kind Tony, of- Tony, did you, each time you get a deal, because it's a pretty big deal to get a deal. Yeah. So each time you'd get a deal, did you think, okay, here we go. This is it, where we're going. Or were you or were you cynical and- I'm not cynical about it. I'm realistic and I- and I think you can feel things, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. to me, always the core of what was happening musically is, was more important while you're while you're in it, you know. I was just going to ask you, what what was the what was the goal? Like you're 1920, you're playing all this music, you've been playing for years. To you at that time, what is the ultimate dream? What, what, what do you get on the radio for? and then go on tour like all the other big bands? I mean, it wasn't we, we didn't have your own with your own band. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We didn't right. we didn't have. We didn't have good business minds back then, you know. Right, I mean, right. We didn't think th about that. It took us a long time for us to develop a mind about the business that we're in. Right. And we just, everything was like, okay, yes, sir, we'll do that. Whatever, you know. And you're directed around to do different things, and and we did, and and we paid attention, and we did really well. We made a record at Electric Ladyland. I made a lot of friends in New York City, uh, and 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 had a wonderful time. Totally broke. You know, but it I running around New York City when you're totally broke is a challenge, but I managed to pull it off. And I did and you I, guys I, used to go to the clubs in New York and sit in and do stuff? Did you used to play the clubs in New York? Every once in a while, yeah, we get mm -hmm. over the bitter end and places like that. You know, I so, used to book a club down there, right? That you? used the original other end became oh, yeah. uh, the rock and roll cafe, and I booked that club in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. wow, that was what a great strip of life! Oh yeah. my god, yeah, crazy, was, crazy. We love so, so okay, so you're playing clubs, you're you're, you're doing your record, you, you're getting on the you're getting on the radio a little bit, yes, a little bit. Yeah. And so what happens? You guys go to London, don't you? Well, uh, Johnny Nash got in touch with us. Oh yeah. Somehow was looking for a band, and uh, and and we had already started understanding and learning how to play reggae because Rabbit, who had left John, Terry's band earlier moved over to Stockholm to live with Johnny Nash and Bob Marley before he had dreadlocks, before he was known as- Wow. Marley. And uh, and Rabbit was over there and Rabbit was sending this this music, this reggae music that they were writing. And, and then of course we were turned on to the, the, the Kingston stuff and everything. And uh, 
way early on, we learned to play reggae and all of our white friends and after, all of our musician friends are going, what the hell is this red? <laughs> it's Jamaican you know along with a lot of nice things dancing and smoking pot and drinking rum and you know it's like and it was you know and we we loved it and then when Johnny Nash discovered that we could rabbit had mentioned to 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 Johnny Nash and his manager well maybe my you know my old mate bandmates and that are living in upstate New York could could be your band and so rabbit came over to be a part of it for a minute but uh, it, it created some difficulties, you know, his personality got a little crazy. And then we became Johnny Nash's backing band and we did a, a few gigs, not a lot, some gigs, and we did, we did some recording with him. And during that time, Rabbit had moved to London and was working with Island Records' Chris Blackwell, who he was introduced to by Danny Timms, who Danny Timms was Johnny Nash's manager, who introduced uh, Bob Marley to Chris or Chris Blackwell, Bob Marley as well, and that's how Bob Marley was discovered by Island Records. Chris Blackwell, wow. amazing guy. He's got a book out. I'm reading it now. It's a brilliant book. And um, Rabbit had done some recording over there, and he had done come back to the states. And while he was while he was in the states with us with Johnny Nash, we'd gone to a couple of studios, and everybody liked the tracks that we did with Rabbit. There was some <laughs> simpatico, simpatico with Rabbit from Terry and I. How we right. came from the same town and we played together. And Rabbit said, I want these, this drummer and this bass player to come to I, to London and play with me and be my band in London. And he went to Blackwell. Blackwell said, well, if they can get themselves here, transport, we will give them a place to stay because they had a, a, a record company apartment, big apartment, and we'll give them a stipend to get by and they will just be here, utility to use. We can use them on anything. You know, they'll work for Island Records playing in our studio that was that was that was the ideal situation wow we went to new york and talked danny Timms into our you know publisher johnny nash's manager into uh pay, play pan for the ticket he did we went over there we continued to write songs all the time and go in the studio and submit songs that we had to came in music their publishing company and we did recording sessions in in, in uh at island we worked for we did recording sessions with rabbit uh, we next thing you know, people uh, discovered that this rhythm section from Texas, you know, a drummer and a bass player were available to play sessions, and because of our style and our in our field, we started getting some calls around town, and we got to work in some major studios with some really well-known producers, and and um, you know, we didn't make any you know chart-topping music, but it was a great um, a great experience. Uh-huh. And um, I stayed there five years. Terry and I stayed there five years. While we were there and we were working for Island Records, Paul Kossoff, uh, who was the, who was in Free, and, uh, uh -huh. and they had their big hits. Uh, Free broke up and um, a couple of the guys started Bad Company. And then Paul Kossoff wanted to start his own band. And so because we were working at Island and we were, you know, he, he, you know guys that could have, you know, they, they wanted to play on it. They asked us to do it, and um, Terry was gung ho. I wasn't gung ho at first. How I, come? I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was what I. I kind of felt like I wanted to advance myself musically in something else. I'm really, really, really glad I did it. It was a wonderful experience. You, you, you operate a lot on instinct and and intuition, don't you? A lot. Of, it's, it's got to feel right to me. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. We all have that some some ways, but but not everybody listens to it, and it sounds like you do pay attention to yours. Well, I mean. 
yeah, I guess so. And I got involved and I did the best I could with uh, the um, talents that I have of playing, uh, songwriting and uh, and helping produce the records because we didn't really, really have uh, real strong production. You know, we kind of mm -hmm. went in the studio with a great engineer and did it ourselves. And and I had quite a bit of studio experience already. So did Terry. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I didn't say that, like, I started playing in the studio probably when I was about 16 or 17 in Houston. Wow. Mm -hmm. and, and I would do country sessions, gospel sessions. There was one studio there. I was the main call and I had a beard wow. and really long hair. <laughs> and I would be on a country session one day and I'd be on a gospel session the next day. Uh-huh. It wasn't a lot of money, but it gave me a lot of experience insofar as playing in the studio. So right. when I got to that situation in New York and then later in London, I had a, I knew what the, I knew were, you know, I know what the microphones were and how to <laughs> play to respond. So we did a backstreet crawler. It ended up in a real bad, sad situation with Paul passing. He had a real terrible drug problem. And we made two records with him. And that's that's when Snuffy came back on the scene. When um didn't we were, Paul like didn't he pass like when you guys were together on a flight or something? Didn't he die on an airplane? Did he die on an airplane? We did. We came to do our, we came back to the United States and did our second, we came to the United States and did some touring with, and barely mm -hmm. made it through it with Paul, with his, mm -hmm. with his health and his drug problems. And, and Snuffy came out and helped us on a lot of those dates. Uh, yes. Fact, he's on it. one of the tracks, isn't he? He's on, he's on some of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. he made probably more than one. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then we were headed back to New York to go do a bunch of promotion and then go to London and Glenn Johns was going to mix the record. And, and we were on Atlantic at the time. We didn't sign with Island, by the way, after all of that. We signed with Atlantic. Uh, Ahmet Erdogan followed us around. Wow. To the studio, to festivals, whatever. Hey, Good guys, company. how are you doing? I want to sign you up. It was wonderful. I loved Ahmet. What a, a, what a wonderful, amazing human being he was. Stories for days just funny as could be. I, I'd love to be, I have been around him even more. So, and um, a, a major figure in the, in the uh, record business. So anyhow, so we're on this plane and uh, Paul decides to go in the bathroom and that was the end. And um, we, uh, we got off the plane in New York and it was quite awkward. And uh, we got through the day and we went to London and they mixed the record and we put together another band and called it Crawler and Atlantic didn't like what we were doing and started treating us like, you know, the kids in the back. And so we got another guitar player and we found a manager, a guy by the name of Abe Hawk, American guy who was over there working for Led Zeppelin and had just led, left Led Zeppelin and running their label. And, who's and who was playing guitar for you now that- uh, Jeff Whitehorn became our guitar player. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we wanted, we wanted Rabbit, but once again, Rabbit was running off and around doing something else. And um, and uh, uh, he took off and went on the road with Eric Burden while we were in the studio trying to put things together in, in London. And, and um, you know, we got a guy named Mike Montgomery that we knew from Texas, Oklahoma, to come and play with us. And we went out as, um, oh, that was, that was, yeah. No, yeah, 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 right. He came as the keyboard. I'm getting mixed up. <laughs> You know, we went back out as Crawler and we signed to CBS and we started doing tours with, you know, Foreigner and Boston. Yeah, you were opening for some big acts. Yeah, yeah. we were we were playing arenas and opening for huge acts. Wow. So sure. now, what? so stop a second here. So what was that like for the boys from Texas? Great. I mean, you know, 
here we are, and it, you know, our dressing room is like a, you know, a, a basketball dressing room in an arena now. We're playing in like big, big, big places. It was wonderful. We had a great crew of, of mostly uh, Scottish guys who took care of us, and uh, we had a ball. You know, do you feel? Do you feel like okay, we're, we're making it now? We're we're, we're getting, we thought that there was there was a good chance. That's mm -hmm. when we thought, well, what something's happening now, and we had we had a very proactive record label. Mm -hmm. and, uh, there were great guys, and uh, and then we had a great manager as well, Avok. And you know, we thought we could have really done well with all of that. And so our first manager that we had with uh, with with Backstreet Crawler, a guy named Johnny Glover, I wouldn't I wouldn't trust him with a dollar bill to this day. I hope you mm -hmm. hear me, Johnny. Uh, <laughs> Johnny Glover was a crook, and uh, uh, but never mind. Uh, so we finished that, and and then we we made our second record uh at caribou ranch and um it, it turned out good and and we toured from we toured behind that as well and then we came to try to make another record and we were rehearsing in texas and something just clicked in me and i went i don't know that i i will love london i don't really want to leave london but i think i'm more attracted at that point of being in, in the United States in the late seventies, I liked what was going on musically and, you know, other music had popped through the, the blues had really come back up again, you know, and, uh, and the, and the type of music that I grew up on. So I thought it might be a good idea. I decided to stick around and stay and, and Terry did as well. Then we all just kind of, we, uh, bailed in London and stayed in the States. And, um, playing around a bar for a little while, a few months. And then I went, look, guys, I'm gone. And they went, what do you mean you're gone? I said, I'm going to, I'm going to Los Angeles. I'm packing up my Mustang. I'm putting a drum kit in it and my, uh, my suitcase. And I'm going to, I'm going to Los Angeles. I'm, I'm, uh -huh. I'm leaving there. I don't, I'm going to figure out a way. And that was like 79. And um, I moved here and I've been, you know, that's, that was, that was the new era of my life. And um, I wouldn't, you know, look. What was the first what was the first big gig? I know Johnny Nash was four. The first big gig after I got here was working with Eric Burden and Snuffy. And how did, how did that happen? Um, I think Louis Cabaza, a keyboard player from Houston who was had lived here, was doing some recording with Eric, and I got asked to go in the studio with him. And I think Snuffy got involved right around the same time as well. And we cut some demos for Eric, which later on led to going into a real studio and also were used some of the demos, I think. And then we were we went on the road. I think Snuffy went out on the road on some of the early stuff, uh, playing with Eric Burden, and um, um, yeah, and we had a lot of fun together, you know. And then uh, then my next gig was uh, I got. Were you there in Australia when he had his uh, bottom, <laughs> the bottom of his bottom? I was there the whole time. <laughs> I yeah. witnessed everything, which which is why well Snuffy. <laughs> Uh, the documentary that Mark Maxey did, the brilliant documentary. Up to snuff. Up to snuff. And Snuffy said, when Mark said, well, how about some of your old friends that will talk about that era of Snuffy? And and he suggested that I be the guy to do it. And I said, Snuffy, you don't want me to be that because what what, what am I going to say? I said, <laughs> I can make up stories. And he goes, Snuffy goes, no, tell the truth. I went, Snuffy, are you really sure? He said, yeah, yeah, tell the truth. So we go in the studio to do this interview of me for the for the uh, for the documentary, and I looked over at Snuff and I said, "Snuffy, we're about to do this." He goes, "Yeah, <laughs> said, this is your last chance, kind of like." 
You know? <laughs> you sure you really want me? I'm not sure of my words, but that was kind of my sentiment. You really want me? You're sure. You know, he thought for a second, he, he went, well, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and Snuffy sat about 10 feet from behind me, uh, 10 feet from me over behind a, a curtain while I was being interviewed. And I could hear him holding, crying, not <laughs> bust out. <laughs> the whole time I'm, was Mark, at, Mark is asking me to tell stories about Snuffy. And, and I tried to be I, t I said, you want me to be honest? And he said, yeah, I'll be honest in whatever way I can. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't want to make Snuffy look bad. He's, I love him to death. He's a wonderful human being and a great friend for many, many, many years. And we all lived through that and through it. And by living through it, we're here now. Yes. yes and we're all, we're all good. <laughs> and, and, uh, but I told the stories and and uh, yes, I was there and in, uh, in, in Australia when that happened. It's quite, well, it's quite a scene going on in Australia. We all, we, mind you, we all had a lot of fun. <laughs> I just, bet you did. But it's just that Snuffy's particular, uh, uh, I would say, penultimate or his ultimate night was that with particular one that we all remember the details of. <laughs> you no, know, Snuffy, you can ask him. He'll tell you. I'm pretty sure he'll tell you. I'm not going to tell you. No, or else you can watch the documentary and it's there all there. And, the it's, and it's all there up to stuff. Okay, so so you go you go out with Eric Burden and and Terry's in there too, right? Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. we were still all roaming together, you know, and, and when I when I moved out here, Terry very soon followed me. And some of the other guys from Houston that we were working with in the bars, they came out as well, but they didn't last very long and they went back. I and see. Terry stayed. He managed to uh, to tough it out, and so did I. After the Eric Burden gig, uh, I got a call from someone at Warner Brothers here who I knew from playing in some. They used to have what they call showcase bands, and I was a musician that could, you know, play in a band and learn somebody's original songs, and go showcase with all these and all these little small clubs around town. Right. And, uh, and there was a guy that worked for Warner Brothers, uh, and. Uh, he had mentioned my name to the people at Warner Brothers when they, when Ricky Lee Jones was putting together a a road band. This was after this is this is Pirates. This wasn't Chucky's in Love. This is right. the next, next era. Mm -hmm. So I went to the rehearsals to the auditions and um, uh, I was the last drummer call that week. And I show up on like a Saturday and I walk in and I I played whatever I thought I you know could do. I didn't get a chance to learn too much. You know, I learned a few of the songs from the records and went in to play them. And at the end of the day, it was like, Hey, you want to come back Monday and continue auditioning? And they've been auditioning drummers and bass players and guitar player, everybody all week long. And, um, I came back on the Monday and then, um, um, the door opens while I'm up on the stage and in walks David Garibaldi, one of my heroes. And Garibaldi walks in and, and I'm going, what's going on? And I, I thought that I would, by coming back on Monday, they, they were kind of giving me the gig. Right. So they didn't talk about much. It's pretty awkward. Garibaldi <laughs> walks in and I went, well, look, I don't have the gig. I get up, I grab my stuff. I walk out, I walk past Garibaldi. I shake his hand. I'm honored to meet you. I'm a huge, huge fan of yours, Dave. I can't believe that this is how we're meeting. Good luck. And I walk out and I think nothing of it. Okay. And um, a couple of days later, Ricky had said to um, the keyboard player, Mike Ruff, I don't know, let's, well, I don't, you know, what, what do you think, Michael? And 
And Michael said, well, David's playing great. He's a wonderful, he's an incredible drummer, blah, blah, blah. And so she said something about, well, I don't know. I hear it a little different or whatever. And Michael said, come watch Tony play Friday night at this local gig uh, with a lady by the name of Katie Seagal, who became a very, very well-known actress and used to sing and write great songs. We were all in bands together. And, and, and Snuffy played with her also. Like This was a very incestuous group with Michael Ruff and, and all of you. Very incestuous, yeah. In in one fashion, we were very incestuous, yes. yes. So, <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, I she came to see me play and at the end of the show, we had a, a cocktail and talked and just BS. And so she said to me, uh, will you come back and audition again tomorrow? And I said, no. And she goes, you want? I said, no, I want audition. I'll come play for you, but I'm not going to audition again. You already heard me play. And uh, I mean, that wasn't, I wasn't being cocky. It was just confidence. I was trying to show confidence. Mm -hmm. And um, she goes, okay. So I show up and I walk in and Dave is now, you know, confused because management <laughs> failed to be honest with him. And I felt really bad about that. You know, he and I uh -huh. talked about it later. I still think he's one of the greatest friggin' drummers in the friggin' Fuck it in the fucking world, man. Dave Garibaldi, you're a god, mm. monster. Um, and so, but styles are different with different players, with different artists, and that uh, that's happened to me both ways. You know, being the guy and not being the guy. Right. So I got the gig, and and that's the whole thing. And 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 I, it wasn't like a huge ego boost because I got that gig. That situation it was like, I'm thrown out really into the deep end in L.A. Right where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in that deep end. I wanted to be pushed like that. And uh, God, I had a ball. <laughs> it just turned into such a fantastic musical situation. And um, I got called to, to go back and do another tour with her. And by doing, by getting to a level um, of, of, of a call like that in Los Angeles that quick within the first couple of years, really, really helped boost my- um, Your cred. Image. Yeah, yeah. yeah, my cred, my image. And like, oh, this guy can- go out on the road. He knows how to play with her, da, da, da. And people saw me play. So, you know, there's a million incredible musicians here that doesn't make you better than everybody else. It just means that something happened in your life that puts you in a situation of being able to play mm -hmm. and getting that opportunity. I mean, I'm looking around the whole time at all these unbelievable drummers who I total were complete idols of mine, you know? And um, um, then after the end of that tour, I was asked to do a, a Bette Midler tour, and I did that. Okay, now, come on. You go from Ricky Lee Jones to Bette Midler. That's quite a change-up right there. Oh, yeah. Because Bette Midler's like, she's yeah. Las Vegas. She's showbiz. She's yeah, but all... She, but she's wonderful. I, we were talking about her last night. My friend Arno Lucas called me from Japan, and we were talking because he was on the Ricky tour, and he got on... Mm -hmm. He got on the bet tour because I got I got him the call as well, and uh, uh, we got on the bet tour together. We just had a ball. Uh, Reggie McBride, the bass player, and myself and and uh, and Arno were the little team on the Ricky tour and on the uh, the, the bet tour. Uh, but the bet tour is fantastic, and she treated all the musicians incredible. Uh, she was really wait, wait. Was Katie a harlot at that time? Oh no, no, no. no. she had been. She had uh -huh. yeah, she had, had done her harlot earlier. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it was a lot of fun. They had three Harlettes, an Ostrange singer. They had a a, 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 two, a, a dancing instructor. They had a, a production coordinator. They had makeup and hair. They had costume. They and had what, what kind of venues are you you doing? Huge venues, I'm assuming. Venues. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sheds. You know, 
10, 15, 20,000 and she was <laughs> filling them up. And yeah. they had a big stage set up with a, you know, like it, it was really cutting edge back then. It was like, it, you went to the show, it was worth it when you paid for the ticket. And right. it was great. She was fantastic. And I really enjoyed that and became friends with Beth. I don't see her or talk to her, but you know, the friendship was there. I had known her before that tour because she was dating a friend of mine and we had hung out a few times and gotten to be chummy and chatty and whatever and laughing and having fun. And, and, um, and then when I got on the tour, you know, how did you get, how did you get that gig? Did you get it from bet directly? How'd you get that gig? No. Uh, once again, there was somebody else on the gig and they weren't happy with them in rehearsals. And some of the guys that were in the band had, had known me and they called, well, one, you know, we're thinking of changing drummers. You got any ideas? Well, yeah. Call Tony. I was sitting on the couch the night before going, God, I wish I had a summer tour. You know, I really wish I had a wow. make some really good money. Phone rings. The dream came true. Can you show up tomorrow? I showed up and I'm up there playing. I don't know any of the music. I haven't had a chance to listen or learn anything, but I'm going to. And but Bet walks in and they said, Bet, we have you a new drummer. And she hustles, does her walk. <laughs> She walks right up to me and of course she recognizes me and knows when she found out it was me because she'd remember my name from the boyfriend that she had dated before Chad Sanford she said she walks up she goes Tony Bronigle where have you been <laughs> and I said well you didn't call me first <laughs> you know and we it just mm -hmm. hit it off wonderfully so and never had uh you know never had a problem you know she wanted something we made sure she got it and if something was wrong musically, we never, we just went, whatever you want, Bet, you're, you're the star. We, we would change it and make her feel really How, So it sounds like she was great to work with. She, she was, and she always told the road manager, take care of my musicians. Wow. When, whenever my limousines aren't being used and they want to go somewhere, let them have the limos. I love that. Who else has done that, you know? That's great. It was wonderful. Mm. Then I then after that I was like what I don't know what I'm going to do after this I played around with uh, with Etta James some and I'd back with all the bands that I was working with in town and you know Terry and I would be working with different bands and and I think by then Teresa had moved out here I I might be told I'm wrong right around that time mm -hmm. Teresa and Terry we were all friends back in Texas she was in another band that we were in back in the late 70s early 80s. And she came out and hooked up with Terry and they became a couple. And, uh, and then there was, that was a new family and uh, Terry and Teresa. And, and um, I was married and then not married uh, to Judy. And then we were all friends living close by together and everything. And Terry came and Teresa came out and that's when uh, the Teresa James thing was, was born in this, in this city, you know, and Terry started writing for her, and, and next thing you know, he put out a simple little record on her, and and uh, it just grew for him and her. And Terry, in this growth, it became a um, in the house, in the studio songwriter producer, and he's done, my God, he's made, I don't know how many records he's done with her, eight, ten, eleven, something like that. I can't remember. At least. Yeah, and and now Terry's producing a lot of outside stuff, and oh, he's put out another i want to say another eight or ten records on other people as well and he's getting the call you know and i'm very proud of him 
He does a great job. He writes he great. Did, songs. He, he, he writes, writes great songs. He writes great songs. Right from here, you know, from here. Yes, he does. That, that you can sing from your heart and comes out of your mouth like you're talking and saying something. And they're very memorable and yeah. catchy. And uh, and Teresa sings the crap out oh, of them. Yeah. And ridiculous. I'm yeah. Really She's such a soulful singer and so natural. Yes, she she is. there's no put on of anything. It's Teresa just goes bam, and it. Comes I love out. that about her. I love that. I, I have a really hard time with the show busy. You know, not the bet kind of show busy, but when it's forced, when it's yeah, when it's yeah. yeah. If there's no talent behind the show busy thing, it's just showbiz. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. You know, if they someone can have a great voice, but if they're singing and they're doing all of this, but there's no. Yeah, there's no soul behind it. It That's doesn't true. mean anything. That's true. Doesn't That's true. matter how good the instrument is if there's no That's soul. Correct. That's correct. Um, okay, so so Terry and Teresa, and that's going on the Bette Midler thing, and and then what happens? Etta James I was working around with Etta James, and mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then Bonnie Raitt made a change in her. Okay, band. now how the hell did that? I mean, now that's well, someone someone huge. She was changing drummers, and someone said. Uh, I think it was Marty Greb. God bless him. He passed on us a little over a year, about a year ago. Wow. Ooh. Anyhow. Um, did you, had you already known, did you know Bonnie no. from? No. No, 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 mm -hmm. no, did not know Bonnie. And um, she came to watch me play with Etta James on a Monday night at the Vine Street Bar and Grill. Mm -hmm. Pretty much hired me on the spot. And um, wow. She walked in with Hutch Hutchinson and Ivan Neville. And Ivan had just Hutch. joined the band. Mm -hmm. And Hutch had been in her band about a year. And Johnny Lee Shell had been in her band about a year. And Marty had just kind of been in there shortly as well. And when, uh, and man, I can't remember the guy's name, left-handed British drummer. I'll remember in a second. He, um, he left the band and she needed a drummer and she hired me that night. And um, I played with her that Friday. Um, uh, I got beat up that night after that show and I almost didn't make the Bonnie Raitt gig. <laughs> What, what, wait, what? I got, I got physically on, beat up. I got attacked on the street by some street punks. Yeah. What? Yeah. And they beat me over the head with my flashlight. And I, <laughs> I shouldn't tell this on Facebook, but anyhow. Yeah, you I, should. This is a, what happened. Well, I, I went to, went to look in a dumpster for, I, my car had been broken into and I went to look in the dumpster for my bag that they took out of my, someone took my bag out of my car. And the most important thing it had in it was my phone book because phone books, you know how important they are. Come on. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. And so I'm looking in this dumpster and this guy comes up to me and goes, Hey, what are you doing here? And he's yelling expletives at me. You mother, you know. And I said, I'm just looking for something. And I went, Oh, this guy's big. What am I gonna do? So I've got my flashlight in my hand and I'm thinking, well, do I make an equalizing move or do I run and make a you know a smarter move? And I ran and uh as I was running, four other guys turned the corner and they all converged on me and caught me over in the middle of, of the street over there, a block away, and threw me on the ground and uh, stomped on my handle. The flashlight came out and then beat me over the head with it. And I had oh, 14 man. stitches back here. I think I still have a, a flat spot back there. <laughs> oh, man. And you had a gig that night with Bonnie? With Bonnie? No, I, I finished. I finished. I was just got off the gig with Etta James. <laughs> And uh, I had to go to the hospital and get stitches. And I, I called Terry. I didn't have insurance or cash or anything. I said, Terry, come come pick me up and take me to the emergency room and bring some cash. And see, he had a few hundred bucks cash on him. And Terry came and picked me up and took me to the emergency room. And I got 
that. And I went home with some painkillers and a six pack of beer and stoved up for a couple of days. And then I rehearsed one day with Bonnie and I went and did a gig with her. And, um, and that, that was it. That was it. The rest, you know, that was the beginning of eight wonderful years. So. And that was, Bonnie was that, that was when she soared and like became like a superstar. You were with her nick of time. You were like, she was not when I first joined her. No, it was like, yeah, but she became while you were with her. Right. Yes. She went and made that record capital. She, she struggled with Warner brothers and then uh, they kind of made one record on her and it didn't do very well. And, um, and you know, she was in between management and everything, and they were doing the people that were handling her were doing the best they could, and and then she made that record on on Capitol Records signed her and Don. She made that record with Don Was and Ed Cherney, and um, man, nick of time, boom. Oh. And we she we were on the Grammys with her. I played on two two songs or two or three songs on the record too, two, and um, she kind of had another band that they use in the studio. That happens a lot, you know, a producer mm-hmm. chooses who they want to use. And I know that, and, you know, the, the, the regular guys kind of get sore about it, but it happens all the time to everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I got, I was disappointed, but I wasn't like, you know, not completely discouraged because she was going to take me on the road. Right. So she made that record and then uh, the Grammy nominations came. She had four of them. We were at the Grammys and she won all four that night. We were there playing with her. What an amazing evening to be at the Grammys and the artist that you're playing with is nominated for four categories and wins all. I can't even, um, I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like for you. Being on stage was like magic for me to be a part of that and and her and her talent and around everybody at that time. I was- What what year was that? 89. Was she with Michael O'Keefe then? Oh, don't ask me that. Her husband, she was married to Michael. Oh, I know, I know, I know Michael him. very well. He's a very good friend. I just can't yeah. remember. Them. I don't know if they were together then. I, they yeah. might've been, they might've mm-hmm. been. I talked to Michael occasionally. I gave mm-hmm. his, I gave his little seven-year-old son drum lessons during COVID. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was really a lot of fun. It was so, cute, you know. Um, oh, so, okay. So, so you're with Bonnie and you're with her. So now Terry, Terry, Tony, tell, tell, tell me what, you play with people for a long period of time like that, and you go through this massive success with them. What shifts? Why do you think art, what makes artists, or do you even give thought, to, what makes artists make these changes every so many years? And and is it heart-wrenching? Do you accept it? Is it, what it's is that? It's heart-wrenching, and and I'm going to try to start out, you know, from a fair point of view, all things evolve. And uh, and then that brings, you know, the evolution of people going through things. That brings a change. And sometimes a change brings a change of consciousness, a change of mind, a change of taste, uh, a change of expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, and with all of that new... Um, success i mean i remember bonnie sand while we were on the boat the bus when she was nothing she goes i love you guys thank you for hanging out <clears throat> excuse me with me when i become successful you'll all be here with me forever and and i never believe that when somebody says that you know and i'm not calling her a liar because i love bonnie ridiculous mm-hmm. i love her she's a, she's an absolutely wonderful human being and she does so much good for so many people in the world she decided it was time for a change uh she had some well, it did, now was it 
there was nothing personal. It was just like a. No, I don't think it was anything personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think she had some outside influence. I think some people mm-hmm. were saying, oh, you need a new band. And in fact, I'm pretty sure uh, I've been told some stories about some people that they said some things like, oh, you know, you need a new band now because like you're big time. And like, uh-huh. So that happens. That happens. That happens. And, and anybody that's in the music business that's watching us, they know that stuff happens and it changes. You just got to get on with it and move on. And and how, how, how okay, in that particular situation, how did you find out? How, how they let you know? It's funny because uh, the, the only funny, the, the awkward part of it is I could already tell. There was something, there was kind of some kind of almost a whisper going on. And I went, what? And, and that's the part I look back on that I didn't appreciate. And, and I don't appreciate the fact that it came down that way, but I'm not going to hold any grudge toward anybody uh, that that happened. I, I, I'm friends with everybody that was involved with all of that from management. And have you seen, I assume you've seen Bonnie many times since. Yeah, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Many times, many times, you know, Mm -hmm. of course. And um, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a wonderful experience all of those years. God bless you, Bonnie. I thank you for all of that. You know, I I love you madly and you're an incredible artist. And um, and I love what you do for the music and the music business and the what you represent in both ways in life and for music. And, and I see what you do for other people all the time. She's, a, she's an amazing woman, um, especially like you see how where she won this year, the song of the year and everybody, people, all these people. She beat out all of those huge pop stars. And then that guy wrote in the Daily Mirror, you know, some uh, some obscure blues singer named Bonnie Ray. And I'm, Isn't that great? That's just... So, this, the world is so behind in some ways, you know. And that's because so, yeah, Bonnie was kids. a great experience, and I learned a lot about a lot of things. And I, my musical, uh, my musical thing had moved on, and and in the genre that I started out as a kid that I wanted to play in, that's where I really got to shine again by playing with Bonnie. Not that I didn't with Bet, I did with Ricky Lee because it was style-wise, it was close. right. That was good, but that was more pop music. I still had a ball playing with her. With Bonnie, I was able to get closer to. The, the the realm of what I grew up on with rhythm and blues and blues. Right. And what a great experience it was. And I, then I'm off the road and I, you know, I like, what do I do? So what, what do we do? Little by little, it started trickling in and um, Johnny Lee was a guitar player. He got let go as well at the same time. And, and you know, with all the uncomfortable parts of it, of it, you know, I said to Johnny one day, I said, Hey, come on, man, we just got to kick it back in gear, in a gear for ourselves. And, he had a four track recorder and and we started pulling the four track in his bedroom and making little demos. And then we went out to the garage and tittered around. And the next thing you know, he's, we got the four track in, this, in, the, in the garage. And the next thing you know, he's moving his car out of the garage. And we got the drum kit in the garage. And <laughs> then he buys an eight track and then he buys a little desk. And next thing you know, it's a card table with a desk and an eight track. And, and now we're you know, and next thing you know, and I just left there a couple hours ago. Now it's a full blown studio and we've made, <laughs> I don't know how many, we've made 40, 50, 60 set, uh, records there now. And I, I produced 20 records in that at least, right. at least 20 in that studio alone. And that was, that's what was born out of the spirit of losing that gig. Wow. Something different. And we started playing around town as who we were. We were a band called, um, Bonnie, we were uh, padlock. So we started playing at the Mint. And um, 
around that time I, I joined, I had joined Jack Mack and the Heart Attack for a few years around that time as well. And, and I didn't do any recording, but I did a bunch of gigging with them. And we, we uh, started playing at the Mint as, as Padlock and little by little that turned into a, a, a great recording band that a, a producer by the name of John Porter, English guy was here and he started using us in the studio, especially all the blues records he produced. And so we did Taj Mahal and we did uh, some Buddy Guy and some early Keb Moe, some of us were on some of that. And then um, Otis Rush, a, a brilliant, you know, um, Chicago blues guitarist. And, and then when we did the Taj stuff, that really stuck. And we went and did the second Taj record. The first one got a Grammy nomination. We go do the second Taj record, got a Grammy nomination. At this point, record label goes, you need to take a band on the road. And I, we suggest you, we like this and Taj. Okay, it's my road band. So <laughs> the second record was called Phantom Blues, Taj Mahal, Phantom Blues. So we go to put the band together to get on the road. And they asked Taj, what's the name of your band? He goes, oh, Phantom Blues Band. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he became the Phantom Blues Band. And we made another album with them called Senior Blues, and that won a Grammy. Well, actually, the first two got nominated, and then the third one won a Grammy. And then um, after Senior Blues, we made a live record at the Mint in 99 or something like that. And, and, um, and uh, that won a Grammy in 2000. And that was the beginning of my producing career because uh, I wasn't really a producer yet. I didn't, I didn't know damn. I mean, all I knew was how to turn on the light and plug in. I knew how to plug mm -hmm. in microphones. I knew what to do in the studio, but I, I didn't know what producing was. I really mm -hmm. didn't. And I was really green at it, but I gave, was, I took that opportunity that was there. Uh, some other extenuating circumstances that for me to have to take over and do that, I, another producer was supposed to do it and didn't show. So I just took the bull by the horn and, and finished that record. And that was, that, that's what inspired me to keep going, you know, that and support from other oh, wonderful people, you know, here in the business, you know, uh, Ed Cherney was a big friend of mine and, and a supporter of the fact that I was trying to do something different than just being a drummer. So, and uh, he helped me a lot and uh, God bless him. I miss him terribly. Mm. And, uh, and Lyle love it. You played with Lyle, didn't you? I did. You're looking back in my yeah. I did a short stint with Lyle. Lyle and I were our our, our mothers went to grammar school together, so we <laughs> always, we always call each other cousin. You know, cute back in uh, Houston, Texas. Lyle's great. What an incredible talent. He was working in all the folk singer songwriter clubs back in Houston, where we would be with you know Guy Clark and Towns Van Zant and Don Sanders and all these incredible a Texas singer songwriter we that we used that's where we used to hang out and Terry and I did a lot because we were working in a band with uh Rocky Hill whose brother was Dusty Hill who is the bass player in ZZ Top mm -hmm. we were the blues act on Wednesdays when all the other singer songwriter guys came through you know a lot of fun things you know life it 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 seems like there's a lot to tell you, but or like I've told you a lot, but there's a lot more. Okay, well, okay. So we're going to just touch on a, on a couple more things that are big headlines, like Robert Cray. How did that happen for uh, you? Um, once again, through relationships of uh, musicians that I had met over the years and whatnot, um, I I came. We came off the road with Taj, and around I think about 2002 was our last time that we 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 
2003, right around 2002, 2003, I was kind of okay with it. I, I, you know, after a while, the bus is not that comfortable anymore. I got. And wait, aren't you going back out with Eric Burden every once in a every while? Every once in a while, because right? I started, well, I started producing Eric in 2002, mm -hmm. right, right in, the first time, and 2002, 2003, and. I didn't go out on the road with him right away, but after a while I did, and I went in and out with him several times. Mm -hmm. I produced three records on Eric over the years. Wow. We had a wonderful, that's a, that's a relationship that is an absolute treasure of mine to be that close to that man and, and to be have him tell the stories that he tells about Jimi Hendrix and everything else that happened to him way back when he first started out, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and you know, they, the animals were more, were more popular than the Beatles and the Stones when they started out. I remember. So Eric was a bigger star, you know, but, but uh, he's such an interesting character and he lives in Athens, Greece now. And I wish I could uh, talk to him more often. We talk on the phone occasionally, but not enough. But um, yeah, that was around that time. Around in 2000, 2099 or 2000, something like that. Mm -hmm. 2001, whenever it was, where did I, I started, I got a, a part in, Oh, I started playing with the Blues Brothers. Okay, a, wait. Okay, so that the Blues Brothers, and according to Jim, on my next is was my next question. So how how the hell did that happen? Ninety four, the House of Blues opened, and I was in the house band, and we played on Monday nights, and we would invite people out to come and play with us. I mean, it, uh, Bruce Springsteen stopped in one night. We had wow. Other big names would come in and play with us, just come up and jam, and, and we had a great little band: Jimmy Wood and uh, JJ and. Oh God! Uh, later on, Johnny Lee ended up in that. I can't remember who the first. Johnny Lee became a part of it as well, and then a couple of different keyboard players. And we went through some evolution. And Joe and and Daryl were the horns that ended up in Phantom Blues Band, the first version of it. Uh, and uh, and Belushi comes in one night, and uh, and we 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 did as a joke. I'd invite him. Come on up, sing. You know, man, play, get your harmonica and sing. And, and not as a joke, like inviting him, thinking he's going to come right. up and as a comedian, go come up and have fun and do a, a parody of his brother or whatever. And uh, he did. He came up and no, a couple of weeks later, he comes back and says, hey, man, uh, can I sit down with you guys? And, and I think he, he wanted us to do Viva Las Vegas or something. <laughs> so we, I think that might have been the first thing we did with him. And he got up and, and then he got bit by the uh, the bug and enjoyed it. And then members of the band would all would started turning him on to music you know blues and, and real stuff and make and he would go home and listen to it and then he'd come back and and um he found out that he could go do corporates and make some very decent money as a big name actor that he was right so we started out that way then we became but because we were the house band at the house of blues Ackroyd is part of the scene next thing you know Ackroyd is kind of tired of the blues brothers band and wanted didn't really want to do that anymore. And Jim said, come on, man, I'll, I'll take care of all the business. All you got to do is play with these guys. They're great. And he goes, oh, yeah, they're great. Oh, those are great musicians. I, I love to play with them. And that's the new Blues Brothers that we, are, that we are now. We're the Blues Brothers with the Sacred Hearts, the Sacred Hearts Band. The Blues Brothers Band is a whole another different entity that, that uh, deserves, obviously, an incredible amount of respect as well, because those are some of the greatest musicians of all time that played in that band, Steve Cropper and Tom Malone and uh, I can't remember all the rest of the guys and brilliant players. And, so, uh, and how long, this has been going on a long time, hasn't it for you? Yeah, that's from, that started in mid late nineties when we started doing some things with, with the Blues Brothers Band. 
um, uh, with Blues Brothers, not the Blues Brothers band, with Dan and Jim. And Jim became the new partner that John, after John's death. And um, they, when they did the Blues Brothers 2000, Jim was supposed to be in it and something changed in the business part of the casting part of it for, and Jim wasn't in the movie. And, um, but uh, they carried on and they're still doing it and we're still doing some stuff with them. Um, I cope is it fun? Oh, it's a ball. We call it our acting gig. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know. Okay, so speaking of your acting gig, so you end up eight years on a sitcom on According to Jim, which my friend Tracy Newman uh, created with John Stark. So how the hell do you get cast in that? Uh, You're a musician. Had you ever acted, Tony? I know you were in, you were in Eric Burden's film, right? Snuffy was too. Yeah, yeah. We we did, Snuffy and I did some scenes there. We did some improv. We made up some stuff in those scenes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we we Snuffy and I made up a scene together. <clears throat> I had acted in high school, but silly high school stuff, and I never really thought about it. And then Jim, uh, this opportunity to do this sitcom comes together, and Jim wanted to have music, and some of the musicians, some real musicians, uh, on the cast. And so they did a, a pilot and at the end of the pilot, they said, well, nobody, nah, you know, we can't use the band. I want it, if we're gonna use a musical scene, we need real actors to do it. And, um, and then when Jim said, oh, okay, okay. Well, I gotta have, come on, let me just have one guy that, that I can have, you know, doing it. Uh, and um, and uh, they, 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 the producer, the, 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 I guess Tracy and whoever else was, well, if there's one guy, it's probably that guy, the drummer, because at the end of the pilot, he laughed and it looked good. <laughs> I mean, that's all I can laugh. think of. That's all I can think of, Vicky. You know, <laughs> well, there were no lines. Why did they choose me? I didn't. I he didn't, laughed. I love it. I didn't. I didn't go. Hey, man, come, on, come on, give me the part. I. I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I just walked away from it, and uh, it came my way. And um, then Jim calls mm-hmm. me and says, uh, "Hey, will you go for an audition?" And I said. Sure, and so I, I, I guess, yeah. So I, I, I learned my part and everything. And he, he was on Martha's Vineyard on vacation. He calls and says, um, um, uh, "Hey, man, do you know your line? Are you you're going to the audition today?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Do you know your lines?" He was nervous for me, and uh, and I'd already given up on being nervous. I thought I, I'm okay. I've got a I've got a musical career. I'm going to be fine. I don't need to worry about being an actor in Hollywood. I really don't. <laughs> so. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> and so I, I, I learned the lines and I, he said, read them to me. So I read them to me and, and, and I was trying to be funny and, <laughs> you know, trying to be a good character. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, no, stop. He said, stop. Don't, 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 uh, don't try to be funny. He, he said, that won't get you anywhere. I said, well, I, I don't. Okay. Thank you. Coach me. He goes, read it like the phone book. And I said, okay. So I read wow. it. I read him completely straight. He goes, no, that's funny. He goes, read it like that today. I said, okay. So I go in there and the room is full of actors, um, famous actors that you've seen, you know, like on TV shows and commercials and everything, you know. Right. And um, he, um, it was a room full of guys and they're all looking at me like, who is this guy? I'm the only guy they don't recognize. They all know. Right. <laughs> who's, who's that guy over the corner? And then finally, somebody says, oh, he's in Jim's band. 
it, it had to be that way because all, then all of them, they're all coming over and kissing up to me. Hey, man, how you doing? I'm Bob. I just uh, started thinking I'm going to get the shoe in, which right. probably would happen anyhow. Right. And, and, um, <laughs> and so I, I go and I read and, and it was fun. I read and I read with a guy who was extremely funny, who I'd seen in movies and everything. And I, I mean, I, I could have been intimidated, but I wouldn't. I went, I got nothing to do but throw it away. And uh, he read so funny and it was amazing. And I just walked out of there when I found him. I said, thanks, man. It was a pleasure just being in the same room with your funny ass because you're really funny. And so uh, I go back out there and we, there was, we, I didn't get, they come out for callbacks. It's like seven callbacks, five, six, seven. Callbacks. Oh, wow. And I look at my partner there, my buddy, John Ravano. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, nothing. Let's go. We split. I get home, phone rings. Jim goes, how'd it go, man? I said, well, there were callbacks, but I didn't get one. He goes, oh, no. Oh, oh Tony, I'm sorry, man. Uh, listen, man, um, I really appreciate you going through the effort to do this because I was, you know, was hoping we could make something happen. All right. Yeah. I said to my wife, I said, hey, yeah, there you go. Say la vie. You know, get, get on with the music. Phone rings. Jim. Jim says, hi, Jim. He goes, callbacks don't mean shit. You're right. <laughs> what did you do? You know? So he said, go join SAG Monday. So they had put, they put me in on SAG and everything. And, you know, God bless Jim for giving me that beginning and that, that shot and that the amount of fun that I had on the show. And, and I knew, and I got to meet Tracy before, and I knew John Stark, the other creator already beforehand as a friend, funny guy, great, brilliant, great guy. And I got this welcoming feeling of being in there and I'm the only non-actor and, you know, and I had to wow. suffer through being the non-actor they they hazed me you know on the first show they how so they, well they and gave they, me, they at the last minute that like before an hour before we're about to go shoot the show the script lady comes over with a complete straight face and hands me a different script with this big long speech in it <laughs> and, and we've got new lines for you and i looked at it and i went at first being so new to it and i went Oh God. Oh God. Wow. Well, oh, well, I better learn this. This is a great opportunity. I got to do everything they want me to do, you know, to be here, you know? So I went out in the trailer and, went, and I went, wait a minute. And I went over to Jim's assistant and Jesse, what a Jesse goes, Oh, you better learn those lines. So I went out in the trailer. I learned the lines. It was a really, wow. And I went, wait a minute, something's going on. So I go, over, I, I catch Jim over in the hallways, Jim, they gave me this fantastic speech, man, on this scene. And he goes, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know the lines? And I said, yeah, I, I, I know. Let me tell you. I, we'll see what you think of this. So I, I, I you know, spiel it off and everything. He goes, yeah, great, great, great. I go back in. And John Stark and everybody else are waiting for my hazing to happen, you know. And, oh. and, uh, and, and I said to John Stark, I said, John, I got this, man. And I looked at him. He goes, He's, I bet you do. You know, everybody was playing up to it. And finally, they announced the whole thing. And da da, Tony Bronigle in the cast. You know, when they, you know, when they go to shoot, they introduce everybody. Right. You know, I, I turned red. I cried. I laughed. I peed my pants. Everything. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know we, we, and it was really wonderful. It was a great experience. I had a lot of fun on it. I got to see the intensity of of shooting TV shows, a sitcom every week. I got to see the craziness. I got to see all the attitudes and the egos. I got to see where the business comes from and goes and da, da, da. And it was amazing to just be around it. And, and I had a great time doing it. Is it something you'd want to do more of? Yeah. I, if, you know, if I could find, if, if a character 
if I had to, if I could read for a character that I feel like I could be really naturally right now, mm-hmm. yeah, I could do that. Just let well, me. Well, right be. now we're in a strike, so there's yeah. not going to be any of that. But well, I'm not. I have an agent, and occasionally I go read something. I do echo cast, and I just I I learn the lines and I put something to it that I think is interesting. I have a lot of really really great actor friends. And a couple of times they've coached me and said, no, don't do this. Do this when you read and so on and so forth. So it was a fantastic. Great- okay. So Tony, uh, before we go, what did you do during the pandemic? You, you, you I, worked on a start- I worked on a startup uh, that didn't happen. It was, oh. a, it was an app that was supposed to be a social media uh, video mm, you know where you could put your put up you could do live gigs at home and put them up on the site and it would handle social media and it would handle selling tickets just like many of the other situations that are out there and it didn't really take off you know mm-hmm. but I did a lot of work I did a lot of production type work where I was making connections with artists and radio stations and or, um, you know people around the country people around the world even back over mm-hmm. you know the Middle East and stuff like that so uh, it was it was it was fun. I look back on it and I say to myself, I wish that I would have studied French and jazz piano during that period. <laughs> All right. So so now back to back to life and and okay. So next week at the at the write off room with Teresa James and the rhythm jazz. Yeah, Yay! Well, what what else you got in your in your cooker? I'm playing with uh, with uh, Jimmy Vivino and Barry Goldberg and Rob Stone. Oh my God! I've known Jimmy for. 30 yeah. something years. Wow. Where, where are you guys playing? Susie at the same place, you know, and, uh, and there's another band around town. Uh, we're putting together a new band called the cats, Martin Gigi and a bunch of whole wonderful horn players. And uh, I'm doing that. And I'm back with Jack Mack in heart attack again, doing some gigs uh, around town. Uh, my band, Phantom Blues Band, we're going back in the studio. I say my band, our band, Phantom Blues Band, we're going back in the studio, record some more songs going to go out on the road uh and i'm sorry we're doing a, another blues cruise and a blues band with tosh yeah we're going we're gonna to go on a cruise and we might be doing some more dates because we made a studio record that larry and i co-produced kind of with all the band all together and so we've got another record we're waiting on the record deal to come through for a release of that uh i produced uh a christmas record in december for 20 christmas 23 on a lisa biales i just finished a coco montoya album coming out on Alligator. I finished a record on Danielle Nicole and we are negotiating with a couple of different entities right now for the release. Um, I finished Richard T. Bear's record, well, co-produced it with uh, uh, Lawrence Juber. That's coming out on Quarto Valley Records. I'm working on a record from a guy, with a guy from Texas by the name of John Del Toro Richardson. He was at two weeks ago here tracking at my house. Um, I'm producing a record of Billy Price, uh, uh, beautiful wonderful blue-eyed soul singer from pittsburgh and um a couple of other locals which uh a great you uh, are a busy busy man yeah i'm busy i'm busy and i'm riding as well and you know i mean i try to get out and play golf a little bit and ride my bicycle and and spend time with my girl my beautiful stephanie whose chocolate is let's talk about her chocolate tell us about stephanie's chocolate i didn't bring a jar in with Uh, uh uh-oh Can I get a jar real quick? Hold on. Yeah, hurry up. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk in your hold that thought. We'll talk in their absence. We happen to have a jar here. I don't have it in this room, but uh, Terry, uh, Terry, I keep doing this. Terry and Tony are interchangeable. 
Tony gave Snuffy a jar. There it is at rehearsal. Delessa. It's called Delessa chocolate. And this particular one is uh, bittersweet chocolate. She has three different brand, uh, flavors and, and combinations of it. There's no sugar in any of this. Wow. Are using her, she's using her natural that come from the ingredients, nuts and stuff like that. I think one of them has stevia, but it's a, uh, what is it? Uh, there's a type of stevia that is okay. That's not. I uh, use stevia. Yeah, yeah. Use sugar alcohols. Uh, no added sugars, dairy or gluten, sugar, alcohols, cholesterol or trans fat. And what do we do with that chocolate, Tony? Well, we spread it on a cracker. There you yeah. go. You want it on toast. <laughs> it's just amazing. You I know? bet it's good I, on an apple. It's it's good on it. I have a friend who puts it with peanut butter mm. uh, and, and mixes it up. I When I want some, I just go great, take a little bowl. I spoon it out into the bowl, let it melt a little bit, and I eat it straight up like it's a candy bar. <laughs> so, I, love I like it. it. It's so, called Delessa, D-E-L-E-S-S-A. -E -E go to her website, D-E-L-E-S-S-A. Delessa. Delessa chocolate. Okay. Stephanie Navy, my girlfriend, is making this and putting it out. And it's that's it's fantastic. And and so one last question. Did you get COVID, Tony? Did you have it? Yeah, I, I got it. I got it during, you know, uh and um uh I, it wasn't terrible, you know. It was like mm -hmm. just having a bad cold flu and everything. I I don't think I had any long-term effects or whatever. So good. Good. Well, I am so looking forward to seeing you next Wednesday oh, at the Right Off Room. Everybody come on down, Teresa James and the Rhythm Tramps. And um, thank you so much for doing this again, Tony. Always fun. We're going to barbecue you. soon. You're going to come up and uh, with Stephanie and we're going to hang okay. out. I'll bring my bathing suit. Uh, thanks for letting me babble and asking me so many questions and being so patient to let me tell these ridiculous stories. It it's wonderful. Hey, this is rock and roll. This is this is this is important stuff it's it's important to get this stuff down and have it chronicled because you've lived a life and uh you've you've played with amazing people you've done a lot of great work tony and it, it, it i want to add you know please come out to see uh, Teresa james and and uh you know viva vino goldberg next week at the right off room and and support the place it's a wonderful place for a lot of great musicians to play at it's a home wonderful venue in la thanks again tony see you soon love Thank you bye-bye